0: Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us and welcome to our podcast at antiqueauctionforum.com. We hope you find this show
1: entertaining and informative.
0: This is Martin and Rain today, and guess what, Rain's not my co-host, or I'm not her co-host. I'm actually going to be asking her some questions. We're going to try something new here, and we're going to have an informational show. And since Rain ha- has such an expertise in art glass, that's what we're going to talk about. How are you doing, Rain?
1: Pretty good. You mean we're going to talk about glass, and I'm going to be interviewed like I'm somebody special?
0: That's right. How do you feel about that? <laughs> is so that I'm not, okay?
1: I'm not sure. I'll tell you how I feel when it's all said and done.
0: Okay All right Now haven't you written some books Or you have You've have, You've done a lot of articles and things on art glass over the years You're known for art glass
1: I am I have written lots of articles And I've been interviewed numerous times And um, I did write a book on art glass for the Dayton Art Museum in Dayton, Ohio uh, On their collection uh, that goes everything from Roman glass all the way to contemporary So I kind of wrote the history of glass making, the different periods of different glass that was made and then featured, you know, little blurbs about every single piece that they have. They they really have a beautiful, beautiful collection if you've never been there.
0: So I know that uh, Louis Comfort Tiffany was very interested in Roman glass, and that's what inspired him to create his glass. Were there any other makers ahead of that besides the Romans um, that were making iridescent glass before Tiffany?
1: Well, actually, that's kind of an interesting question, and it's, I've always found it's one to be um, kind of interesting. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that Lotz was making iridescent glass before Louis Comfort Tiffany was. And oh. uh, yeah, a lot of people have. I had ignored. no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, you hear all kinds of stories, you know, that Lotz worked for Tiffany. That's not true. That Lotz was inspired by Tiffany. That's not true. I think it's plain to he's see. He's Czech, right? Uh, he's, he's, yes, correct. He's bohemian. Bohemian. Mm-hmm. And no, I, I think that it's very easy to see that they both influenced each other in some of their designs and that nature was a, a huge influence in their designs. But they, they both did some similar designs of, of each other's. But he, um, the, the Lotz company was actually making iridescent glass before Tiffany's company was. So a lot of times I've heard Tiffany collectors say, you know, and I'd say, well, do you, do you like Lotz glass? Do you, you know, have any interest in Stuben glass? And people have said to me over the years, oh, Lotes, that Tiffany wannabe, you know, and I kind of sit and scratch my head and just kind of mm. smile and say, you know, uh, okay. Um, so <laughs> the answer to your question is yes, there were.
0: Okay. So now I know, I, I believe I read somewhere that didn't Lotes only sign glass for like three years or a year or something like that and most of the pieces are unsigned is that right
1: that's true most of the pieces are unsigned i'm not sure how many years they they actually signed and they signed their glass a handful of different ways so there wasn't just one way but um yeah y- y- most Lot's glass was indeed unsigned i
0: have seen pieces of loathe's that had fake lct oh. signatures on them i'm mm-hmm. sure you've seen that too
1: I've seen that. I've seen pieces of Lotz glass with fake Lotz signatures on them. I, I, yeah, it's it's kind of funny. But, I, I, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of times pieces that are unsigned, you know, people have felt like, well, if we put a signature on it, it'll make it easier to sell. And I guess for the novice who still hasn't been able to tell a piece of glass by looking at it without looking at the signature, you know, it would influence them in which to buy it. Um, but to a mm. true Lotz collector... They don't necessarily want something with a fake signature on it, even though the piece, you know, is what the signature purports it to be. Um, you know, and sure. also, I mean, there's some some collectors that if it has a fake signature on it, they'll pay to have it removed. So
0: Wow. Yeah. They have it ground and polished.
1: Yeah, they'll have it ground and polished a, yeah. out. I, I've seen Tiffany pieces with Stubin signatures, Stubin pieces with Tiffany signatures. It's, <laughs> it's also incestuous.
0: Yeah. It's amazing it's amazing it do you know when uh, tiffany started to make this kind of iridescent glass i
1: think in the early 1890s all the way until uh, the early 1930s so for for a good period I see. of time
0: uh-huh so right near his death he was keep still uh creating it now um what was the extent of do you know what the extent of his participation was in other words did he work directly with his glass blowers
1: Tiffany did he he did not blow glass himself but he oversaw things and he was you know known for you know walking through the studios looking at different things and if he thought something was less than it should be um, it it's purported that it would be broken by him and ask them to start over and uh, you know oh. to do it again and 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 in many instances his level of perfectionism kind of kept the company in the negative. And, you know, it's been said that had had the, he not have the kind of money from the family that he had, he probably would have failed, even though his glass is, you know, his glass and his lamps and his windows is what it is. I mean, he, he, he was quite the perfectionist, and he would have something redone and redone. And there aren't very many other um, glass artists from that time period that you could say the same thing about. I mean, they certainly liked producing good product, but if something... Was less than perfect; it still would would oftentimes find its way onto the market.
0: So, if you see a Tiffany vase and it has some type of flaw in it, most likely it's not correct. I would assume.
1: Well, that's not necessarily true either. Um, but but what would happen is perhaps you know it was one of the one of the artists that worked there, somebody who worked for the company, would take it home at night, and and that's how oh, it would it would disappear off the shelves and, and eventually make it you know, to the, to the I market. I do
0: believe that I have handled an auring face one time that had a little bubble in it. And I was quite surprised. Everything else about it did look perfect.
1: Yeah, and there were pieces. You know, some right. of the some of the techniques uh, that he did um, would have issues with the cooling process, and sometimes you would have internal cracks um, because of when it would cool down, there would be, uh, you know, something in the glass that would cause it, even the smallest Things if it was a piece of ash or something that in it would, that would make the glass unstable and crack, or just from from the, the the way that the glass was made, the chemical compound that was made was unstable itself would cause a piece to crack. And, and obviously, if it was something that was caught, um, it would not be sold. But if it wasn't caught, if it got past them, then yeah. So you will find pieces. With in the making, as we like to say, imperfections, but it's it's right. not it's not as often as some of the other companies.
0: Uh-huh. Now, getting back to when he started, wasn't he involved in an in exhibition where his pieces became real popular?
1: The Paris Exposition of 1900.
0: Yes, I believe that's what it is. Yes.
1: Yes, and you know, and so, he was fortunate enough to, um, you know, his father had stores around the country and in other in right. other countries as well, and so his items could be know, exhibited in his father's stores, which were you know fancy good, well-to-do, you know, for the for the wealthy type of stores. So that was an easy way to get his products in front of you know the the right type of people.
0: Right. Did do you know if his art glass became popular right away or did it take a while?
1: Uh, it's my understanding that it, it 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 did very well right right out of the gate, and and it's interesting because mm-hmm. some of the earlier pieces. Um, are, are not as strong in color, not as great in decoration, though collectors oftentimes covet those early pieces because it's something, sometimes there are forms that you just didn't continue to see, shapes that you didn't continue to see, decorations you didn't see, you know, very often. And, um, you know, even while they're not necessarily as commercial as some of the more popular things are, they're a little more unique. And, and mm-hmm. you know, the diehard collectors seem to really like them. It's kind of like Steuben yeah. glass. The Steuben glass collectors, they tend to like the the early, what we call the three-digit pieces. And those were glass that had some of the earliest pieces that were made that had three different, uh, three-digit different 3 signatures, like numbers on the bottom, that were only in three digits that, that signified it was an earlier piece. And the, the color of the glass, like in Steuben, had not quite been perfected yet, the Aureens back in the three-digit mm-hmm. numbers they tend to be a more silvery iridescence as opposed to that kind of garish real brassy gold that they managed mm-hmm. to create later on down the line so you kind of see the same kind of thing going on between the two different houses for the earlier pieces
0: you know a lot of people think of sudan glass as clear glass but i'll tell you there's some fabulous pieces that were made in, in um, aurine and uh, the pearl uh, color i can't remember what that's called but they're, uh, they demand very high prices for the rare, rare pieces, absolutely. almost as high as Tiffany. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, at one point in time, Louis Convert Tiffany went to sue Frederick Carter and Steuben for, you know, for supposedly stealing their uh, chemical, um, you know, recipe, if you will. And, uh, and then the, the lawsuit was dropped. And I'm, and I'm not really sure what kind of happened in between to make that happen. make it kind of just go away but it did
0: now when you said earlier that he probably was running his company in a negative because he was so fussy did he ever have trouble keeping up with the production of the demand of his pieces
1: i don't think that he um had problems keeping up with the demand um you know but he was one of those kinds of people that you know his level of perfectionism he would kind of take to the extreme he was a very smart businessman i mean even for his level of kind of anal, if you will. Um, a lot of people have had, you know, kind of conversations back and forth between the numbering systems on the bottom of, of Tiffany, for example, and some people uh, believe them to be shape numbers, and in instances like the pastel lines, it's kind of been proven that they're shape numbers. But the earlier pieces um, have numbers, and and people thought uh, that that was either a dating system, uh, whether it was a K prefix, or I mean, a, a letter prefix or a, a letter suffix, would indicate about the time period of the year that it was made, and then other people have felt like it was an inventory number. And I think the inventory hmm. number amongst some of the longer-term dealers is something that they they kind of think actually might be the case because you will sometimes see a number that's been scratched out, more than one number. And it, it, it Tiffany was known for putting things in stores on consignment, so unlike today, like if a store wants to to acquire a product, you know, they buy it and maybe they pay for it in 60 days, 90 days, whatever it may be. The product comes first. And uh, as far as Tiffany went, he would put his items in the stores. And if they hadn't sold in three months, they would be withdrawn from the store because he didn't want people to continue to see the same thing sitting on the shelf again and again and again that would lend to Mm -hmm. Tiffany's products having fallen out of favor. And he definitely didn't want that. So they would be picked up and returned and then put at another store another time which actually might explain why there would be two different sets of numbers on the bottom of a piece.
0: Speaking of numbers, but the numbers on the metalwares and things like that, did they indicate a model?
1: Yes, correct. Something mm-hmm. you're talking about like a number on the bottom of a base for a lamp. Right. Right, and also yes. on the shade of a lamp as well. And yeah, and and the great mm-hmm. thing is if you have the book Tiffany at Auction by Alistair Duncan, he took the time at one point to, to put those numbers in order and address a photo to go with each number. So you could look at that number and then kind of go back to finding on what page you know that that shape number was, that base number was, that you know, whatever, and you could go look and see if it matched what it was that you were looking at. And that it's not true, there's not a photo for every single number that's in there, but for a good portion of them, the things that you do see kind of again and again. So I know that many of us have taken that, and and if somebody called on the phone and said, well, I have, you know, for example, a 16-inch tulip shade on, you know, base number, blah, 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 without looking at a photo, you could pick up the book, flip to the back, find that base number, look at the photo, and you'd know immediately what it was that that they had for sale.
0: I know that he signed, getting back to our class, he signed his art class several different ways, LCT, Fevril, Lewis Comfort Tiffany. Do you know why he signed those uh, art glass pieces so many different ways?
1: Well, and they were also signed L.C. Tiffany Favril, L.C. Tiffany Favril, Inc. Um, some were signed with paper label. There was more than one kind of paper label. The paper label sometimes would come with an inscribed number and a paper label, so that explains why sometimes you only find something with a number and not a like an LCT or anything like that. Those are traditionally earlier mm-hmm. pieces. And, you know, I mean, when you buy something today, don't you take the kind of sticker off of it? When you buy it, I mean, so it's, right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that's 100 years old. Now, I'm sure China. it's been washed yeah. and cleaned at least <laughs> once or twice over the last 100 years, uh, you know, since the item was made. So a lot of those paper labels did not did not last. Um, you know, the different, um, like, whether something was a paper label or a signature, some of that just indicates the time period in which they were made. You know, right. why he would use LCT on some things and then L.C. Tiffany Favril on others, L.C. Tiffany Favril, Inc., Lct favril I mean the, the variety I, I I don't really know why one was used and 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 not the other and I don't know if it boiled down to whoever it was in the finishing department because when pieces were made they would go to the finishing department until they were sold when they were sold then they would be signed and I don't oh, know really? if, yeah so they they could sit on the shelf for a long time and and not be so uh, you know signed finished you know but until they were going to be shipped off or until somebody came in and bought them you know they didn't They didn't have a signature attached to them.
0: Something my father told me when I was pretty young, about 15 or 16, when he was showing me a Tiffany vase, is he said, you take your thumb and you rub it along the signature, and if you can just barely feel it, it's probably right because it's a diamond point signature. But the fake signatures where sometimes used a Dremel or some type of vibrating
1: yeah, thing Dremel and you tool.
0: really feel the fake signatures. Is that, is that true?
1: You know, I've, I've actually never heard that, and um, but I would imagine there probably is some truth to that. Uh, I've never, mm-hmm. like, kind of rubbed my finger over it before. I think, for me, when I've looked at the, the signature on the bottom, whether it's right or not, it's just more about, you know, looking at, it, having looked at numerous signatures and also, sure. again, looking at the piece itself and determining, right. you know, is it right or is it not. You know, it's kind of like a painting. You know, anybody, yes. the, the signature part is the easiest part of the whole thing. The last thing, you know, that yeah, should be the last thing you look at and not the first thing. But in many people's cases, it is the first thing. But, uh, yeah, you know, there, well, like I, I said, I you're, you. you're probably right. There, there probably is some truth to how, how that feels. I can't say I've ever rubbed my thumb over it, though. <laughs> I'm going to have to try that on a fake piece next time.
0: Well, my father didn't always tell me 100% the correct information, but he did tell me what you just said. Um, never go by the signature of a painting. Never go by signature on a piece. Go by the piece first and how you feel when you're looking at it.
1: A lot you know, of times, really good. when people ask me, well, how is it signed? And I say, how would you like for it to be signed? <laughs> you know, it's, it's it, don't right. let that, and, and essentially it doesn't mean I'm out signing pieces, because Lord knows I'm not, but it's more about trying to teach <laughs> somebody, don't let that be the defining point for you know, for, for why right. you do or do not acquire something.
0: Well, we talked about Lotes earlier. When did some of the other copycats uh, begin? I know there was Quizal, mm-hmm. um, and there were some other companies. Um, can you talk a little bit about them and when they started? You
1: know, again, at the, at the turn of the century, um, you know, Quizal, Stubin, um, Durand, Kubla, Treves, there were a number of them, you know, on the basically on the East Coast. And what would happen is you, in some instances, you would have glassblowers or designers from, you know, from Tiffany that would jump ship and think that they could make a name for themselves or take their designs from Tiffany and and make them somewhere, you know, somewhere else at another studio. And, uh, you have the same problem in the Bohemia region, you know, there were a lot of, again, the whole incestuous thing, people that... Worked at one factory and then left and took their designs and made the same one somewhere else. And until you really get to know the glass, sometimes it does make it challenging. You know, where where was this made? Mm. And it and it again, you know, the the forms are the same, the decoration is the same, but the color and is just a little bit off, just a little bit different. And uh, you know, so so yeah, you started to see at, you know around the turn of the century as as Louis glass success became more and more prominent you know more and more you know people trying to do their own thing and and trying to compete with him and uh, and some Hmm. you know some did it somewhat successfully nobody really as well as he Um, but but some that have certainly made a name for themselves and and I think what's helped kind of keep collectors um, interested in the the smaller you know companies is a couple of things one we certainly um, had some very talented artists producing glass, no matter who which factory they were working for. But um, mm-hmm. the other thing is, is as Tiffany's fame kind of came back into favor, you know, after it fell out of favor, and then uh, you know Lillian Nassau, and and uh, you know she she kind of helped create that that market again. Um, you know, the Tiffany glass got so expensive that a lot of people who really enjoyed that kind of glass just flat out couldn't afford it or couldn't justify it. And so here were these other glass houses that were, um, affordable, not as well known. Mm -hmm. And you could have something that was period, not a reproduction, not contemporary, um, that, you know, that you could add to your collection that was, uh, you know, almost just as nice, you know, and for, you know, a fraction of the price. Um, but, you Mm -hmm. know, much like, you know other leaded lamp manufacturers that were creating things. You know everything. There's no interest in something, and then all of a sudden there's a lot of interest in something, and so that you know raises the the demand. It's the whole supply and demand thing. It raises demand for it, and all of a sudden the price goes up. So what once was mm-hmm. affordable, all of a sudden, kind of became expensive.
0: Uh, one of the, we were talking about fake signatures a little bit earlier, and if you had to guess. Would you think that there's more fake Tiffany glass out there than real Tiffany glass?
1: No, I, I don't. I mean, there's certainly a lot. And yeah. and what's interesting is that not all of it is really fake Tiffany glass. I mean, I don't think there's really a whole lot of fake Tiffany glass that's out there. Um, it's more glassware like, you know, Phoenix Studios or Orient and Flume, you know, California Lumberg Studios. Glass that was mm-hmm. made to stand on its own merit. And there's yes. just the naughty people that are out there that take off the Lumberg or the Phoenix or the Orient and Flume stickers, signatures, or whatever, and put a fake Tiffany's signature on there. So I think you see yeah, actually works. more of that than actual reproduction glass. Because it didn't start out as mm-hmm. reproduction. It started out as, you know, something. Lumberg is,
0: is actually selling fairly well these days. I've seen it sell in, anywhere um, in California. It's uh, It's pretty well sought after.
1: Look at Charles Lawton. Charles Lawton is probably, you know, as far as any of the iridescent glass that's made on, you know, the contemporary American market is probably the most expensive. I mean, more so than Lumberg or or any of the others. Charles Mm -hmm. Lawton stuff has quite a following.
0: Okay. Now what would you tell a novice collector on how to carefully collect, say Tiffany right now?
1: Well, you know what I tell anybody first and foremost is buy what appeals to you. You know, Mm -hmm. If somebody tells you something's rare, if you don't like it, don't buy it, whether it's rare or not. Um, You know, I can appreciate wanting to have a piece to have as an example, even though you don't really care for it. Okay. But for the most part, build your collection, by things that make you smile, things you like. And Mm -hmm. once you've Mm -hmm. figured out, okay, I like Tiffany glass and I only like gold decorated pieces or I only like flora forms or I only like uh, Cypriot, whatever it may be you know, that, that you narrow it down to, to they made that you like, figure out what your budget is, and then buy the best example that that budget will allot you. It's it's not smart to have 10 pieces of gold plain Tiffany. You know, take the m- amount of money that you spent on the 10 pieces and buy, if you happen to like the gold, then buy a gold decorated piece of Tiffany. Buy the one piece or two pieces as opposed to 10.
0: Mm-hmm. Does
1: that make sense? Good advice. When you're buying things... That are, you know, the middle level to the higher end level, you'll, you'll never go wrong. The lower end stuff that's a dime a dozen, it's never really going to yeah. amount to much of anything in your lifetime. You know, or and it's, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, and, and, yeah, I mean, you know, it's great to have five finger bowls and six sherberts but are you really going to use them? <laughs> Why not have right. one really pretty right. vase to put in the, you know, the, in the middle of your fireplace mantle or in the china cabinet under a nice light and, and you know, have something you can really show off.
0: Right. Now, I saw... At auction one time, a red Tiffany vase go and and went for a ton of money. I know there's some really rare pieces. What is your experience with some of the rare pieces? Have you, have you come across a lot of them?
1: It's interesting that you say um, rare uh because at one point in time uh, kind of before eBay and you know there's many people selling things on the internet it was thought to be that that red Tiffany was rare we kind of know better now <laughs> uh really yeah you know mm-hmm. how it is you've been in the auction business long enough all it takes is for one you know special painting or that somebody thinks that it's special to show up and, and hit a big price, and exactly. all of a sudden there's ten of them next week up for sale.
0: That's right. Yeah,
1: yeah I mean that's kind of what happened with the red, the red thing, uh, you know. So red, <laughs> red is. I mean, it's nice to have a piece of red Tiffany in your collection, but a, I would recommend a decorated red Tiffany piece in your collection before just a plain red. You know, I've I've sold some some great glass over the years. I've sold pieces of Tiffany glass. Uh, I th- think the least expensive I've ever, I mean, the most expensive I've ever sold a piece for was 85000 and I know that, um, you know, colleagues of mine have sold pieces for considerably more money than that.
0: Well, wow. As far as a collector getting into collecting Tiffany, mm-hmm. let's say art class vases, uh, what might they get in the door at as far as spending for, say, uh, a little small vase or something like that?
1: If you're looking at a piece of mm-hmm. Tiffany, a-, a gold piece of... You know, a gold simple piece of Tiffany. Um, you know, but unless there's something unique to it, you can you can start buying Tiffany vases for under a thousand dollars all day long.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, are you a collector yourself?
1: I am. I've been a collector. That's what prompted me to become a dealer. I was a collector for a couple of years before I actually rolled over and you know started playing playing dealer. I actually mm-hmm. became a dealer mm-hmm. so I, I could fund my own personal collection, which a lot of us. Kind of went down the same path say, not really with the intention of being a dealer but that's mm, kind of where you ended up um, purely by accident
0: i've heard that many times from mm. people in all that collect all different kinds of things that become dealers yeah let's talk a little bit about ebay and buying online is that a place known to have some good pieces of uh, tiffany glass
1: over the years some interesting things have certainly shown up. We used to see more interesting Tiffany several years ago than we do today. The, the dealers have kind of shied away from listing too much inventory on there because for one problem or another, um, you know, deadbeat bidders, people who are just, you know, bidding on things and then they don't pay for them. They're just raising the price up and then at the last minute withdraw their bids. I mean, it's, you know, it's like the wild, wild west on eBay. <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. Um you
1: know and I think another thing is is a lot of people have shied away from buying things on eBay because they can't hold them in hand and mm-hmm. what my interpretation of excellent condition is may not be the same as yours and that doesn't mean I'm out to defraud anybody you know just maybe I don't mind there's a small scratch on the bottom of the foot um you know mm-hmm. maybe maybe I don't know to look with a really powerful light to see that it's got an internal crack. And then when the person gets it and they see that it's cracked, well, was it cracked to start out with or did it get damaged in shipping and it's a lot of money to tie up to try, you know what I'm saying? Um, Mm -hmm. So we used to see a lot more good things show up there. And I know every great once in a while something still does, but I know that I don't see and hear the stories about greatness showing up there all that much anymore. But you know, the second Mm -hmm. you air this... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There'll be something rare that shows up there, and it will be called something that it's not, and somebody's going to get it for a bargain, and I'm going to be laughed at.
0: Right, right. Now I know uh, you, you mentioned Lillian Nassau earlier, and I know that all Tiffany pieces basically fell out of favor in the in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And when did people start collecting again? Do you know?
1: Well, what's interesting is that Lillian decided that. You know, she in the '60s she decided that she was going to create a market for Tiffany again. And she mm-hmm. and a few other dealers would go into Sotheby's, which was Park Bernay at the time, and Christie's, and they would go and bid against each other. Boxed lots of Tiffany mm-hmm. used to come up for sale and was just given away. And so they decided wow. that they would create this what gave the appearance of. You know, battle in which to you know to have these things, and 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 so they they were just kind of bidding against each other back and forth, creating you know the illusion, you know that this was back in demand, and then they would buy the things and take them into their stores and sell them. So people would come to their stores and see these things, and they had seen you know kind of the 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 what gave the appearance of strength at the auction market, and so they felt like it was something that they should buy. So it's kind of a wow. funny thing back in the, you know, back in the 60s, and you. Know, I've been told that, you know, back in the 50s, you could buy a box lot of Tiffany Glass for, you know, 40 or $50. Gosh, why couldn't I have lived mm. back then and know what I know today?
0: Jeez. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh-huh. Wow. It is such a limited resource. What do you think the, the future of uh, values will be? Do you think, uh, this is kind of a two-part question, do you think it's ever possible for it to fall out of favor again? <sighs>
1: You know, I think that the Tiffany name, even if you're not a collector, you pretty much know the name, and you mm-hmm. equate it to glass or lamps or windows, and, and I think people always kind of equate it with the affluent as well, and you see enough of it in magazines. You, As long as the auction houses are selling it, you know, that kind of shows that there's a reason to collect it. You know, a lot of times people look to the auction houses to tell people what they should buy, um, what's popular, and how much they should pay. Mm-hmm. And so, as long mm-hmm. as you still see it in the museums, as long as it's you know still written about in books, and as long as the auction houses are still carrying it, I don't think it'll ever fall out of favor. Mm-hmm. It hasn't really mm-hmm. ever fallen out of favor since it kind of came back into favor. And we've certainly had times where um, you know the Japanese came in and they were buying up you know everything to build museums and paying large amounts of money for things and so what gave the appearance of you know it it rising at a much stronger pace than normal and then all of a sudden it went kind of quiet never really went kind of quiet it just went back to where the market should have been all along um Mm -hmm. you know so i mean it's always kind of continued to steadily rise you know uh, uh, every year Mm -hmm. and uh so i mean yeah no i don't think so
0: right now, Stuban Glass, still in business in Upper State, New York. Um, do they ever create anything like the old creations, or do they just strictly stay to clear glass at this point?
1: Well, they actually made clear glass back in back in the day as well. And um, so um, the answer to your question is, are they making colored glass? I haven't seen them make, I, and I don't really follow the newer designs uh, mm-hmm. so much. I think that they're still doing clear crystal in their... There was a time not long ago, and gosh, I hope this doesn't happen to be the case, but there had been some talk about um, Stuben Glass having their glass made somewhere else, like abroad.
0: Mm. And that's, oh, boy.
1: Yeah, that's disheartening. And, um, I, you know, I was contacted by somebody the other day that the um, Stuben has a store in New York City. And, uh, and there, I found it very interesting. This gentleman invited me to come out for a personal tour of the Steuben store, and he is a sports memorabilia dealer. And, mm. um, yeah, and he's had um, an exhibit of sports memorabilia within the Steuben store for two or three showings now. They're looking for a, mm. a third extension or a fourth extension. And I thought it was great, but then it kind of made me ask you know, myself, why would Steuben have... What's the What's the relationship? Where's the what, how is this benefiting them? And so I, I'm not really sure if that's a sign of the times or you know or if they have found a way to make a marriage between Stuen Glass and sports memorabilia, which uh, <laughs> I, you know it's it's piqued my curiosity. so if the exhibit is still going on the next time I'm in New York, I'm definitely going to go check it out. Yeah. Right. but I, I believe that they are not they're still not doing colored glass and um i can tell you that their store in new york for at least a while i'm not sure if they still are or not because i haven't been in there in a little bit but a a few years ago they were um starting to sell um antique glass so you know frederick carter era glass not just the contemporary Mm -hmm. and the the prices were that they were putting on these things were for the year (laughs) 10,000 I don't know if they ever got it, wow. and maybe they did just from tourist people who didn't know any better, but there was no collector that was going to go in that store and pay the kind of money that they were asking for things. It was really over-the-top outrageous. But uh, wow. it was good to see that they were at least exhibiting some really great you know, pieces in the in the store.
0: Mm-hmm. But I do remember the first time that we spoke, you told me about an incredible um, appraisal you did, not too far away from the Suban Company. Can you talk about that? The woman had... Eight hundred pieces, was
1: it? Oh well, I have um, a client. I, I had a client. Um, she's passed away, who had over five thousand pieces in her That's collection. What it is. <laughs> yeah, she had over eight hundred. Is it's not such a big deal when you're talking five thousand. Eight hundred is a lot for me, but <laughs> right. five thousand was yeah. was overwhelming. And I can tell you that um, the the story you remember was she lived in upstate New York as a child. And oh, see. her family was very well-to-do, and each of the children was to determine what their job, their profession was going to be by the time they were 13 years old. And she decided she was going to make one wing of their house into a museum. And she wanted to show in her museums to Ben and Tiffany and, and other glass. She, she also had a penchant for Victorian glass and things. And the family was so well-to-do that Steuben would close in the evenings and allow her to come in like Michael Jackson you know, on a clothing spree, uh, go in and shop. And she would uh. acquire things. And um, she was in her 80s uh, by the time I met her, and she was still collecting to that day. And uh, she had an amazing, amazing, amazing collection. But it all started... Um, just as you remember from her visits to Corning. Yeah?
0: She probably collected 800 items in her sleep,
1: uh, you know? Yeah, so like I mean, an- it was very interesting. She she had um, over, th- I can't remember if it was 200 or 300 Eperns, different, every single one oh of them. Oh, my God,
0: those, those can take up a lot of room, and they're fragile, too.
1: That's right. And somebody, <laughs> at the time, there wasn't really a book out on Eperns, and I kept telling her that was something that she really, you know, should consider partnering up with somebody because... I mean, they were, they were each unique, they were wonderful, and, and not my kind of thing that I collect, but I'm telling you, to see that many of these out on display, I mean, they weren't <laughs> boxed away. They were out on display, and uh, it was just, it was unbelievable to see.
0: You said she passed away. Any ideas? The collection, has, has that gone somewhere?
1: I don't know what her family... Her family didn't really care anything about the collection, you know, because they had kind of grown up with it, and it and it owned her. She did not own the collection. The collection mm-hmm. owned her. Mm-hmm. And anybody that has 5000 anything, is owned by their collection. And right. I, had at one point, had, had a museum come in with me who was interested in acquiring the collection. And as I had mentioned, you know, her family was very well-to-do, and that continued on throughout her years. And um, we had offered several million dollars to acquire her collection and they would put it on exhibit permanently at the museum and, um, you know, and put her name on the collection. in it. And it just goes to show, it was, it was interesting that she had us come out a couple of times to look at the collection, but that she really had no interest in selling it, even though she said she did, uh, because we have a museum that wants to do all these, and museums don't normally buy, as you well know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, They don't normally, especially that volume. You say
0: the benefactor. Yeah, mm.
1: exactly. And uh, so uh, that was kind of the last that I spoke with her. And um, I know that her husband had passed away, and, and she wasn't too far behind. So I don't really know what's happened to it to this day, sadly. Yeah. Imagine it probably yeah. rolled through some auction houses would be... My guess: her kids probably wanted to clear it out of the house as quickly as they could and, and call it a day. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, have you ever have you ever seen Portland glass?
1: Sure, yeah, like a Portland vase. Yeah, port- yeah.
0: Um, I did an auction one time for a guy that had five thousand pieces of Portland glass. He, he wrote the book on uh, several books on Portland glass, and out of all those five thousand pieces, he had say a handful. That had some serious value that were unusual, you know, colored pieces and things like that. This was before the clear glass market dropped drastically. Yeah. So we sold right at the right time. But you can imagine how many days it took us to move with a big crew to pack and move all that stuff to an auction hall. It was really amazing. Never want to do that again.
1: No, I can (laughs) totally imagine because I had to inventory this person's collection. Photograph and handwrite and measure Mm -hmm. every single piece um, which is what I was hired to do yeah. before before reaching wow. out to the museum, and and that was that was a very long. I mean, it was me, myself, and I. That was that was tedious.
0: Yes, yeah. wow. Yeah. That appraisal must look like the phone book when you got done with it. It
1: did, it most certainly did. Wow. Yeah.
0: Well, Rain, I, I think uh, I think we're out of time. I want to thank you so much. This has been uh, been a pleasure doing this together.
1: It's been very unique. I next time I'm going to interview you.
0: Yes. Okay. <laughs> sounds good okay so you'll hear from both of us soon in another upcoming podcast so this is martin willis with rain haines and we're signing off